Okay, we're going to be in, I haven't completely decided yet, we're going to be at the end of 2 Samuel, the beginning of 1 Kings. don't know that we're necessarily going to read anything in 2 Samuel tonight, but we are in a time of transition in our study. And uh, what we were looking at last week is we were looking at uh, the fallout from David's failure. And we studied David for quite a while, and we're going to move on from him tonight. But in David's life, uh, he is a good example for us. He's relatable to us. And um, I want to go back just a little bit before him because we've been studying through the kings of Israel. And if we wanted to just kind of do a comparison on where we're at with it so far, whenever we looked at King Saul... The reason why he was where he was was that the nation of Israel uh, wanted to be like their peers. They wanted to be like the nations that was around them. And ultimately, they didn't trust God. They said, we're not trusting God to provide someone to come after uh, Samuel because Samuel is old. We're not trusting his children because they're wicked. And we're not trusting that God's already got a plan in place or he's got something that he's working out. Because with everything that we're looking at, everything that we can see, all the parts that uh, we have knowledge of, we're not seeing any kind of good leadership coming out of this. So we need to make a king to be like all the other nations. And so they ended up with what they asked for. They ended up with a king like the other nations, a king that was weak, a king that was self-willed, and a king that was insecure. And really most of Saul's reign as king was making a mess of things. He wasn't conquering the enemies. He wasn't leading them into battle. He definitely didn't lead them into prosperity. In a way, he did unify the nation to an extent, but at his death, the nation still fractured, and part of them uh, part of them followed Saul's uh, son. Part of them followed David, right? And so really, if you looked at Saul's uh, his reign as a king, he didn't accomplish any of the things that the Israelites were desiring out of a king. He didn't show them the way to God. He didn't judge righteously between them. He didn't lead them out to battle. Uh, Jonathan or David did. He didn't go out and chase the enemies. He chased God's man. He didn't lead them in any kind of a, a spiritual way. Instead, he... Uh, went out and consulted with necromancers and sorcerers, right? Uh, he half obeyed and then he blamed the people. And so really Saul's entire, his entire kingdom, his entire time that he reigned was a big failure. Uh, and it is a picture for us to see um, how much of a wreck the Christian life is whenever it is lived for self, whenever it's lived by the, the power of our flesh. Because ultimately, Saul's a picture of a carnal Christian. And we can argue whether or not he was saved. I personally, I believe that he was, just simply because the whenever Samuel came and spoke to him, he says, today you're going to be where I'm at. And Samuel was saved. Could have just been that he was going to die, but... You know, it's debatable. But anyway, about it, he is a picture of a carnal Christian. It is a picture of a Christian living by the means of his flesh, by doing the things that are right in their own eyes. And Saul really has no victories. Uh, his best moments, I think, were whenever he was small in his own eyes at the very beginning. But even at those times, he wasn't trusting God. Because whenever they came to anoint him as king, was, well, Samuel had already anointed him. But whenever they came to crown him as king before all the people, what did he do? He hid. You know, he was head and shoulders above everyone else, and he was hiding amongst the stuff. Yeah. And they had to go hunting for him. Yeah. And so he didn't trust God from the very beginning, none of it. Uh, he never had any kind of a spiritual walk. Any kind of a, He had a knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. He had a, um, I guess he had a... Um, What's the word I'm looking for here? He had a time where he had met God, if you will. I guess a salvation experience, if you will. But it never went beyond that. 
He still did everything in the ways that seemed right to him. Even whenever he had direct revelation from God, and God says, this is my will, he still botched that up. Right? And so then we come to King David, which is the one that we've been on for a while. David was God's chosen. I believe that uh, if the people hadn't requested a king and required one that was like all nations around them, God would have still gave them David. I believe that God had chosen David, that God had made multiple promises down throughout time, that uh, the Messiah would come out of Judah, that Judah would be the one that would have the scepter that wouldn't depart from them, that there was going to be ruling and reigning. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 leaves um, qualifications for a king whenever they came into the land. And God said in the law, whenever Moses was yet alive, that whenever they got into the land, that there would be a king. And so I believe David was God's chosen man, and Saul was man doing things their own way. God says, okay, if you want to do things your way, if you're requiring this, I'll give you what you want. But it, you won't like it. And that's a lesson just for ourselves, because a lot of times we look at all of the circumstances around us. We look at everything that is within our power, within our ability, within our knowledge, and we pass judgment based on our inferior knowledge, and we start making demands of God. We start whining, we start fussing, we start complaining, we start um, accusing God. And I think there are times that God will give us what we want because we want it, not because it's what's good for us or that He wants for us. And so there's multiple, multiple times we see throughout Scripture that the people are so insistent to have things their own way, God says, I'll give it to you, and you can see how it works. And Saul is one of those examples. And so that's one of the things that we have to keep in the back of our mind whenever we begin to question God's will, whenever we start questioning the place that we are in our lives, the circumstances in our lives, and we start making accusations foolishly toward God. If we start making demands of God, God may very well give us what we're demanding of him. And we'll get to see firsthand why he was withholding it from us at first. Yeah. Why it wasn't his will. Yeah. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so that's why we need to be careful in our attitude toward God, in our attitude to our prayers. I believe we can go to God with anything. We can go to him. We don't even necessarily have to go with the right motives or the right attitudes. But we also have to go in faith, realizing that ultimately not my will but thine be done. Mm -hmm. And so if we go forcefully and say, okay... I am the one in charge, and you're going to do my bidding. I'll say, okay, let's see how big of a mess it is when you're in control. Yeah. And so that's what happened with Saul. So anyway, we're getting to David. David, as I said, was God's chosen man. Uh, David was going to become king with or without Saul. Israel would have been better off without Saul. Okay? But God still used Saul to prepare David. Now, God would have had other means to prepare David if there wasn't Saul, right? But God used Saul to prepare David, and David was a better man for having to go through all the junk that Saul put him through. And so anyway, uh, he cleaned up Saul's mess. He went through and uh, regained all of the land that Saul had lost. He had uh, gained even more land that Israel had failed to, con or to conquer up until that point, right? Because God had promised Abraham a lot bigger land than what the Israelites conquered whenever they came into the promised land. And so it was under David's hand that Israel possessed the biggest amount of land that they ever did. Okay? And so anyway, he cleaned up Saul's mess. He led in revival. He brought the people back to the worship of God. He unified them around God, around God's, uh, not necessarily his house, because Solomon would build the temple, right? Right. But anyway, he led them in this revival. He showed them how to worship. He wrote all of the psalms, and he ordered the the, tab the worship amongst the priests and the Levites, and uh, he, he put all these things together and uh, made things decent in order as far as the religion goes. He had uh, different ones that was in charge of the music ministry for the people of Israel. He had different ones that were performing different tasks. He set the, the uh, priests in their courses, all of these things, to per perform all of the tasks that God had given them. And so David did all of this, and led them in, like I said, a spiritual revival. And so David is really the high watermark of the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. Even as you continue to go through 
First uh, and Second Kings, as you go through First and Second Chronicles, uh, over and over, what you end up seeing is each king is measured by David. You ever notice that? That he was faithful, but not like unto David. His heart was right with God, but not to the extent that David's was. And so over and over again, we find that the kings are compared back to David. And that was a poor paraphrasing, but you understand those passages you read through, and it evaluates the kings according to David. And so you have the good kings. There's eight good kings of Judah, but each one of them evaluates him versus David. And so anyway, he was faithful, he followed God, he loved his people. You can compare that with Saul, and Saul was none of the three. Saul didn't love the people, he didn't care anything about the people. The people were just a a means to an end. They're a way to get what he's wanting out of them, right? And so he loved the people, and David had his ups and downs, and he grew through them, and he finished strong. David could say with... Uh, with Paul the Apostle, I believe, I have fought a good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith, right? And so if Saul was a self-willed Christian, uh, David pictures a normal Christian life because uh, if we look at David, we remember his failures a lot of times, Mm -hmm. but there's none of us that are without sin. There's none of us that's not going to fail. And I hate to normalize the fact that we're going to sin and come short of the glory of God, so to speak. But that's the way life is. As long as we are dwelling in these bodies of flesh, we are not going to live a perfect life. But uh, as we sin, as we fail, we need to do like David, confess it, forsake it, and learn from it, right? Mm -hmm. And so with David, he learned from his failure. And then after he learned from it, he was leaning on God to help him through the consequences and all the things that came about. And then he let God take all of these broken pieces of the things that he shattered and put them together into something good. Okay? Uh, And something that was pointed out to me this week that I thought was really good, Psalm 119 is one that uh, David wrote. Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. And so David is saying that I messed up. And then because of the affliction that came upon me, it made me a better man. And so he saw the value of the chastisement. He saw the value of God's correction in his life. Because that's what we went over last week was all the chastisement, all the correction, right? And so that was kind of heavy last week was looking at, okay, David sinned with Bathsheba, and then he had to uh, pay for it fourfold, right? He ended up having four children that died. Uh, He committed sexual sin. It was going to continue in his household. What he did secretly, his children were going to do openly. And so Absalom laid with his concubines on the roof of the palace for the whole world to see, right? Uh, uh, Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Um, Absalom killed Amnon. Uh, Joab killed uh, Absalom because Absalom formed a rebellion against King David ousted him from the throne and sent him running like King Saul did. And so you have all of these things going on. And then the child that died that was conceived with Bathsheba, there was three, and the fourth one we'll learn about tonight. But anyway, all of these failures came about in David's life, or all these consequences, I can say, from his failures in uh, his personal relationships, his, his love of women, having many wives, and all the turmoil that brought between his children but also the sins that he committed, the example that he set before the people, the fact that it took away his, um, in, in many ways, he undermined his own authority. He no longer had a, a leg to stand on to confront sin in his children's life because he was guilty of the same thing. He became an excuse to other people. And we've seen that play out just in society. If you, you go to talk to a, a person, maybe a family member or a co-worker, a neighbor, someone on the street, they'll point out Christians or so-called Christians that have done wrong and use them as an excuse, right? And I've talked to people that was that way before, and they would say, you know, I had, I was drugged to church every every week as a kid growing up, and I seen the way that my dad and my mom walked throughout the week, and they'd come to church and they'd act all holy and pious, 
But then at home, they were cussing and beating me and mistreating each other and doing all these different things. And so Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. We've heard those kind of things. And so as David is looking at his son Amnon that's lusting after his sister, if David comes and says, hey, that is sexual sin, that's wrong, you can't have her, but what about Bathsheba? Didn't have a leg to stand on, right? Okay? Coming to Absalom and say, Absalom, you can't take things into your own hands. How can you go and just murder your brother like that? Oh, sounds a lot like you did to Uriah the Hittite. When you sent him into battle to have him slain. Not a leg to stand on. How dare you go and lay with my concubine? Well, how dare you go and lay with Bathsheba? She was married to Uriah. You become a, a, a reason for others to blaspheme, right? And so this is what happened in David's life. But he says, through all of that affliction, through all the things that came, through all the pain that entered my life, it caused me to lean more on God. It caused me uh, to, uh, he says, but now I've kept thy word. He says, it has given me more reason to keep me from messing up. Okay. Whenever you get caught up in your sin a time or two and the consequences come, you have some uncomfortable times, you have some costs associated with it, you're going to be more careful the next time. You're going to say sin is too costly. Okay? I saw a quote just this evening. It said that um, uh, there's no way that the devil can make uh, hell look good, so he does all he can to make the road there look good. And that's where we're at today. Uh, everything's dressed up, the, the road to hell. It looks fun and beautiful, right? It's like Pleasure Island on Pinocchio. Yeah. Okay? If you could peer into... I don't know if you've ever watched Pinocchio. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, but on that movie... I'm subjected to all these cartoons. But on that movie, uh, they give the kids free reign to go into this, like, this big carnival-type thing, uh, smoke cigarettes, and drink all the root beer they can. I think they're actually drinking beer, right? And so they're smoking, they're drinking, they're busting things up, they're tearing everything up, they're getting into fights and all these different things. And what they don't realize is the stuff that they're putting into themselves actually is going to end up turning them into a donkey. Okay? And then they take the donkeys and make them work the salt mines. Okay? And so if they would say, hey, come and work the salt mines, no one's going to sign up for that. They say, we're going to make a donkey out of you. No one's going to sign up for that. But they say, hey, come and do everything that your parents don't allow you to do. Come and do all the things that society is wrong for you to do. Go and just indulge yourself. They're like, hey, sign me up. And in the end, they had to pay the wages for their, their choice, right? And uh, that's kind of a, a goofy illustration maybe. But that's a good illustration because that's what the devil does is he, he makes a bunch of donkeys out of us. Yeah. <laughs> You know, he takes a little bit of sin, a little bit of pleasure, and it says there's pleasure in sin for a season. But every season comes to an end. We know that summer's over now, and I think we're skipping over autumn. We're going right into winter. It's getting cold. It's getting wet. It's getting dark. All these things. Seasons come to an end. And so anyway, after, De after David reaped what he sowed, he says, I'm going to quit sowing that crop. I don't want to reap it. And uh, so he's better from it. And so we have to learn from our failure. We lean on God and let him heal and help us. And we let God turn our, our bad into good. And so David is a picture of, like I said, the normal Christian life. Uh, if you will look at David's life, it goes like this. It may not be necessarily high and low, but it's up and down. And so there's growth and there's mistakes. And there's, I think it's an upward trend with the occasional downward. But that's how David's life went. And at the end of his life, he was still serving God. Right. At the end of his life, he still loved God. At the end of his life, he was still faithful. And we're going to see that tonight. And then we're going to get into Solomon. And what's your all's... Pardon my accent. What, what's your all's um, thoughts on Solomon? How did he perform? What, good king, bad king. Hmm. Nine hundred wives and all this stuff. Um, but uh, okay, 
he had his ups and downs as well. I will, I will go back when you spoke about soul. I don't have much history about soul, but the way you explain a bit, it, it seems to me like I have much questions about about his red and whatever. Mm-hmm. In Solomon, I will say it's, it's in between as well. Because okay. if you 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 read what he Okay, what God bless him mm-hmm. to do for for glory of God as well, mm-hmm. that's huge. Mm-hmm. Because build such big temples, give to whatever he was distributing his wealth to other, even other nations. Mm-hmm. But if you look in his own personal life as well, and I'm not going to blame on on. on on his personal life because I will assume that was the time. I don't know if I'm yeah. wrong. Well, some of it's it's the culture of of, the, of what kings did. Did yeah. And so they said they wanted a king like the nations around them, yeah. and so he was being a king like the, the nations around. Like yeah. So I will assume that was the the culture of the time. So, mm-hmm. but if I start if personally I will start comparing the culture of today or the the day we live in now, mm-hmm. we'd say it was a mess as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. well. One thing we have to be careful about is judging characters of the past by today's standards. By today's standards. Yeah. Because, that's because that's that's a huge thing even going on in our yeah. culture today yeah. is they're going back and judging people from previous generations, yeah. even like, like founders of countries or uh, leaders of movements yeah. and things like this. Yeah. And, they're judging them by the standards of 2023 when they lived in, you know, 1923 or 1823 or 2380, you know. And so you got to realize that you can't can't judge them based on today's standards. But on the other hand, uh, the Bible is a timeless standard. And so you can judge any culture, any society, anything by the things of Scripture and see whether they uh, meet up with God's standard, right? And so, okay, are you going to say something? Yeah, I was just saying you open up something. Okay, Bible, it doesn't elapse in any way form. But again, if we check, um, in terms of kings, mm-hmm. that was uh, Old Testament mm-hmm. that they were dealing with. So mm-hmm. they didn't have New Testament, even though there was already... Uh, um, <coughs> There was already it was already prophesied that I was looking yeah. about New Testament Jesus coming and mm-hmm. takes into the world all these things. But again, in Old Testament, if you you the way I read and the way I look on it, it it it, it seems to me like mostly they were dealing with cultural mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And uh, if 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 we start looking based on, as you said, Bible doesn't change. Mm-hmm. But again, I will argue to say that there's change there. So I don't know how I, I'm gonna fit those change into. But there's change when the New Testament comes mm-hmm. because it starts elapsing some of the things that they were doing which we can judge on our time today. Right. Yeah. Okay. So with what you're saying, um, as far as things have changed since Bible days, yes, mm-hmm. obviously. But uh, as far as what God considers right and wrong, that's the same author. Yeah. Okay, so morality is absolute. God's mm-hmm. law, his right and wrongs are always right and wrong. But this is where we get into context, okay? And what was the purpose of what was being written, okay? And that is very important as we're studying the Bible because if you start talking with uh, lost people, especially if they are antagonistic toward Christianity, if they don't like Christians and they're trying to cause problems, then they point out a lot of the cultural things that would be problematic today. Well, you know, there's slavery in the Bible and it seems like God's okay with it. There's polygamy. There's all these different things. Uh, And they bring those things out and they say, well, I don't want anything to do with that. But if you bring it back to the proper context and what's going on, you look at the Old Testament, it is leading toward Jesus, okay? 
and it is showing that God has revealed himself to mankind, both personally through creation, through his word, through the law, through all these different things. He has shown mankind who he is, what he expects out of them, and they fail repeatedly. And so it is a historical narrative. It is recording the failures and successes. It's not a prescription. It's not saying live like this, but all things were written for our knowledge, for our learning, right? And so whenever we're reading through these guys, it's not like, okay, I I need to emulate their life. I need to do what they did. But no, I can learn from their life. And so we're studying throughout David and we're saying, okay, whenever he went astray from what God told him to do, whenever he went astray from godly principles, it created a mess and it had ripple effects down throughout his life and throughout even his children's lives, right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, you can can learn those things and say, okay, well, uh, I don't want to do the same mistakes that he did. And now you're not going to go out and have your eye killed and sleep with Bathsheba and, you know, but fornication, bad results, adultery, bad results, right? Uh, God revealing what's right and wrong and you ignoring it, bad results. Whenever you are seeking after God and you're trying to lead the people that you are in authority over toward God, God blesses that, good results, And we can learn from that, right? But going back to what I was saying with uh, learning from the context of it, going throughout the Old Testament scripture throughout the historical narrative, you're finding that God is uh, shepherding the people of Israel in such a way to bring about a lineage and a family that he could send, well, not send, but that he could come down to earth in human form and work out his plan of redemption. And so he had promised since Genesis chapter number three that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Okay? And so you've got all those prophecies and everything. And so he had to work through the lineage of mankind to bring it up to the place where you could have Luke chapter two, where, you know, in the the city of Bethlehem, there was a baby that was born, the son of God, right? And so in the Old Testament, it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's not telling you how to how to live. It's showing you how they lived, and we can learn from it. Okay? And so whenever you're looking at these men and their lives, they're not shining examples saying, okay, be like David. Be like, uh, like Abraham. It's saying you are like David. You are like Abraham. You are clothed in the flesh. You're going to make the same mistakes uh, that they did, or you're, you can make the same mistakes they did. But if you make those mistakes, this is what's going to happen. If you make the good decisions, this is how that's going to transpire as well. And so you see that happening throughout the Old Testament. That's why we're studying this, is because it does instruct us. It does inform us so that we're able to, as we go out in our day-to-day life, I go out and I'm you know, driving down the road tomorrow, or I'm going to the shop tomorrow or I'm doing whatever tomorrow, I'm confronted with different decisions to make. And I can do one thing or the other. And I look at those decisions and say, which one's pleasing to God? Which one is going to put me in line to where God can bless me? Or which one is going to be going against God and is going to put me in line for evil consequences? And so because of the examples of all those guys in the Bible, I'm looking at, I'm like, yeah, I want to have the high points, mm-hmm. not the low ones. Yeah. And so we learn from the mistakes, right? And so that's one reason why I say that David is a picture of the the normal Christian life is we're going to have mistakes and we're going to have successes. And our life is going to be the product of the two of those. And if we are wise, we will do our very best to stay as close to God as possible and not to go against his word. Now, whenever we look at the Old Testament, we can say, okay, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never, uh, I've never killed a man, right? Yeah. And so I'm doing pretty good when compared to David. But that's where the culture comes in and different things like that. That's where his position as king comes in. That's where all these different things. And so God is also dealing with them based on the knowledge that they have, to whom much is given, much is expected, right? The knowledge that they have, the ability they have, all those things. 
And uh, long story short, I'm glad God is the judge and not me. But I do want to learn from their their mistakes and hopefully have less of them in my life. Okay? And so that might have been a little bit of a rabbit trail that we went on, but it was a, uh, it was a good hunt anyway. And so anyway, um, whenever we come to Solomon, I asked a question. I said, what do we think of his life? Uh, was it good? Was it bad? How did it line up whenever we've been looking at Saul and David? Uh, Saul's the, the carnal Christian life. Uh, David is the normal Christian life. Solomon would be the backslidden Christian life because Solomon starts out phenomenally. He starts out on the top, and he ends up on the bottom. I mean, he is the prodigal king, Right? If you look at his life, he is the prodigal king because, uh, and I'm getting ahead of myself and maybe I'm, I think we're familiar enough with the, the stories and whatnot. I can go and, uh, you know, spoil the, the next couple service, uh, next couple Bible studies. But whenever you look at Solomon's life, what we're going to look at tonight, hopefully we get there. What we're going to look at tonight is he starts out so well, but then whenever he marries his 700 wives, he gets his 300 concubines, Right. Whenever he does that, whenever they're all saying, hey, we want to worship our God, our God, as all of our idols, they drug him away to where he's worshiping idols. I mean, he has heard the voice of God. He has had uh, experiences with God himself. He has built the temple. He has, you know, offered up his thousand sacrifices on the altars, all these different things. And the next thing you know, he's bowing down to an idol. You go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of the most depressing books you're ever going to read. Y'all realize that? You ever read Ecclesiastes? Yeah. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He says, life stinks. It's worthless. That's what he says. And so he goes through and he says, I had everything. I had all the power, all the wealth, and I had all the time in the world because my kingdom was at peace. And so I set about to find the purpose of life. That's a summary of the, the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, so I gave myself to drink, and I went out, and I partied. And that wasn't the purpose of life. It stunk. I didn't withhold any beautiful woman for myself. Obviously, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And so he said, I had the most of women. I enjoyed all the physical pleasures. Still empty. He says, I had more wealth than any man's ever had before. Didn't do it either. And by the time I got to the end of it, he says, wisdom was actually a curse on him. Basically, he says that it was a heaviness to him because of all the things that he knew, all the things he experienced. And he got up to the end of his life, and he says the sum of the matter is this. The man's best way to spend his life is to love God and keep his commandments. He says, that's a summary of it all. I've, I've tried everything, and it all comes back to what King David's going to tell him in the passage that we're in today. David tells him at the beginning of his reign, don't leave off serving God. Be faithful to God. Keep his commandments. God will bless you. It'll give you a good life. And Saul goes off to the hog pen, finds out that it's total rubbish, and ends up eating the husks. And by the time it comes back around, he says, I've tried it all, and I thought I would figure this out. And David had it figured out all along. Dad knew what he was talking about, and I had to go the long way around to figure that out. The amazing thing with Solomon is that he was the wisest man to ever live outside of Jesus Christ, but he behaved probably the most foolishly. And so that's weird for us to try to process, but here's the thing, and I've questioned, my, I've questioned this many different times. How could Solomon be the wisest man and do things that are so stupid? You ever question that? No, no, but Solomon, as, as I was, sorry to cut you off. No, you're fine, as, go ahead. As you were talking about uh, Saul, mm -hmm. I start questioning how can, the question that I have in my mind is like, does uh, in, 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 uh, in King's time, mm -hmm. being a king uh, appoint you to be servant of God? Mm -hmm. Or in other form, being a king, does it shows that you are a man of God? Are you this? Are you saved in in simple, in simple question? No, no. 
because most of the kings were extremely wicked. Wicked, yeah. But they were meant to be a representative of God. Mm. So King Saul was originally anointed by the priests, mm. and they were that anointing was saying basically, God is enduing you with power, with authority to preside over his people, to judge his people, to execute justice and righteousness mm. in the people. And as God is conferring that responsibility on them, He's also, or that authority, he's also holding them responsible. And so along with any kind of responsibility, there's accountability. And so those kings that uh, had God's mandate, had God's power, also are held accountable for how they used it and whether they represented him well. We could carry that over to the Christian life, though. Mm -hmm. Because we are his ambassadors. We are representatives of Christ. We are meant to go out and be witnesses, be light into the world, right? And most of us are not real good uh, representatives of Christ. And that's why I ask my question. It's like being the king meant to be served. Today's modern life is that's doing things of God, going to church or participating in all things of God means you are saved. No. No. No, because salvation is by it's grace or faith. Grace, yes. so, and so, yeah, they can, they can have the position. Mm-hmm. They can claim to represent God. It's just like, uh, you know, I can be a pastor and not be mm-hmm. saved. Be saved yeah. You know, I can be at church every day of the week. I can memorize the Bible from cover to cover. I can preach a sermon every week. I can have, you know, uh, a ministry that has thousands of people. But if I've never, yeah, if I've never trusted Christ as my Savior, if I've never, okay, uh, the Bible says repent and believe the gospel. To repent means I have a change of mind. And that change of mind is I am not right with God. Because most people are saying, I'm a good person. Whenever I, whenever I have a change of mind about my relationship with God, whenever I say I am not a good person, I am a sinner, and I'm bound for hell, so that's repentance. I am had a change of mind about my relationship with God and eternity. And so then, repent and believe. Well, what am I believing? I'm believing that Jesus Christ died for me and he's able to save me. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I repent and I believe, I can't save me. Only he can save me, and I'm trusting him to do that. Then I'm saved, right? Mm-hmm. And so unless I've come to that place in my life found myself as a sinner in need of a Savior and trusted Him as a Savior, I'm lost, regardless. And uh, so whenever we're looking at Saul and David and Solomon, and I'm giving them as examples of the Christian life, I'm not saying that because they're a king that they're a Christian. I'm not saying that uh, even with Saul, I said, I can't say for sure that he's saved. I believe that he is. There's a lot of people that say that he's not. We'll find out when we get to heaven if he's there or not. Mm-hmm. But it is a an illustration, it is a picture, a parable, if you will. Okay? And so whenever we get to Solomon, he is the backslidden Christian. He is the one that, uh, in essence, was either raised in church or that got saved and then turned his back on it went away. And I think at the end, he came back around because you have, like, the book of Ecclesiastes. You have some of his uh, proverbs that he wrote. And it's talking about the lessons that he's learned. But the question that kind of got me going in all of this was how could someone who was the wisest man do things that are so foolish? And so what I've ended up kind of coming to a conclusion on that and resting on is there are plenty of things in my life that I know to be right and to be wrong, and I still do wrong. Mm-hmm. The Bible says to know to, good, to know to do good and do it not to him it is sin, Right. And so there are plenty of things. I have the wisdom. I have the knowledge. But I might choose rather than to follow after wisdom to follow after the flesh. You know, I I know I need to read my Bible and pray every day. But some days the flesh wins out and it doesn't happen. I know to do that. And so we can have all the wisdom in the world. It doesn't mean that by you know you're automatically going to do everything right. No, I've seen some very stupid, smart people. 
and Solomon would have been one of them. Okay, so we went through all this, and we're about done, and we haven't even read any scripture yet. But we've been all over the Bible. We've been sticking with the Bible. We just haven't been reading anything. And so anyway, with our us wrapping up last week, we were looking at all of these things. I didn't even go into David's sin and numbering the people. But um, even as a result of that sin, he ended up buying uh, the floor, the, the threshing floor of Arana, the, the Jebusite. And that's going to be the place the temple ends up being built on. That's Mount Moriah. Okay, that is where Abraham offered up Isaac on that mountain. That is the place that David bought to, to end the plague that God had sent. And it's the place that Solomon's going to build the temple on. Okay, and so even through that whole situation, God used it as a judgment, and David purchased the property that would later have the temple built on it. Okay, and God even brought beauty out of that. He even brought good out of that. And so it's amazing how God can do that. Amen. Now, it doesn't mean that we, we lessen our fear of sin and the consequences of sin, but it does help us to understand that whenever we do mess up, that God doesn't say, okay, I'm done with you and kick, you, kick us to the curb. Mm -hmm. if, we, uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so whenever we sin, there will still be consequences, but if we run to him instead of away from him, he can take that sin and he can uh, bring good about it. He can work all things together for good. Okay? And so whenever we come to chapter 1 of First Kings, we better read a little bit, right? And it says, Now the king was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. Therefore his servants said unto him, Let there be sought uh, for my lord the king a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in thy bosom, that my lord the king may get heat. What do you think of their medical system? Okay, so they they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coast of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her unto the king. And the damsel was very fair, and cherished the king, and ministered to him. But the king knew her not. And so just, just a couple comments on this is, okay, first thing, David is old, yeah. okay? To give you a little idea about what's, what's going on here, uh, the book of First and Second Kings was originally one book. It was written by Jeremiah at the beginning of the exile, okay? And so First and Second Samuel was written by Samuel and uh, one, of the, one of the prophets, I want to say Nathan or Gad. But anyway, First and Second Samuel was written all the way back before the kings. First and Second Kings was written after the kings, whenever they were carried off into Babylon. Okay, and the reason that First and Second Kings was written was to show them why they were carried away. Okay, because put yourself in Israel's position. Israel has all the promises. They have the law. They have all these things. God working for them, and now all of a sudden they find. The temple destroyed, Jerusalem destroyed, and they're in Babylon, and they say, God has failed us. And so Jeremiah the prophet, the weeping prophet, Lamentations, all those, he wrote First and Second Kings to the people of Israel to show them why they were being judged, to show them that God hadn't failed them, that they had failed God, and they were under his chastening. And so as you read through First and Second Kings, you're finding out the decline of Israel. You're seeing them go away from God and how they fell and got to the place where God had no choice but to take them out of the land and put them in Babylon. Okay? To show them that God is faithful and that he is chasing them for a season, but he's going to bring them back into the land. Okay? And so I bring all of that out because we're starting at the end of David's life. David was the high watermark. David was the good times. Okay? And so David was old. He was stricken in years. And he was about ready to die. He says that he, he got no heat, so basically he was freezing. His body wasn't keeping up temperature. And what was their solution? This tells you a little bit about David as well. Bringing a woman. Remember we said that that was his, his weak spot? And so they said, hey, David likes women. If we're going to keep him warm, why not bring in a young virgin to minister to him, to lay with him, to keep him good and warm? Okay. 
That's kind of messed up, isn't it? It's messed up. But you realize how bad a shape David is in because of verse number four. Yeah. But the king knew or not. Yeah. He was too far gone. They brought in a beautiful young virgin. He didn't want anything to do with her. So he was too far gone. Now, I say that kind of jokingly, but this girl ends up being a very key piece of the story because later on, she is going to reappear. Okay. But anyway, during this time, David's about ready to die. He is very weak. He is even past being with women and all those things. And so his son, Adonijah, sees this as his opportunity. Okay, and this is why I went into this first part. If you remember David's sons, his oldest son was Amnon, right? Amnon is dead. Okay, then his second son, we don't really hear anything about him. It appears that he is dead as well. I can't even remember his name. He's never mentioned even in some of the genealogies. He's not there. He died young. Third son, Absalom. He's dead. Okay, so Adonijah is the fourth son. He's now the oldest living son, and he is uh, Absalom's brother. And so he is the son of royalty in David, and he is son of royalty because his mother was the daughter of a king of maybe the Geshurites, I think it was. Okay, so he was royalty on both sides. He's the oldest son of David. He's the brother of Absalom, and he has inherited his brother's tendencies and disposition. Okay? And so as David is nearing death, Adonijah says, now is my chance. Here is when I can be opportunistic. Here's when I can work things to my favor, and I can get the throne. Now, normally the way it works, there's a succession. When the king dies... His son takes his place. Adonijah knows that uh, Solomon is meant to become king. But he also knows that the people of Israel are familiar with the cultures around them that says that the oldest son becomes king. And so he plays off uh, Absalom's uh, playbook here. And he goes out and he tries to win the hearts of the people. Go ahead and read number verse number five. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So exalted himself. I will be king. His concern is his prospering. It's him becoming the king. He's not caring about the people of Israel. He's not caring about the will of God. He's not caring about the will of David. He says, how can I make this happen? Okay. And so he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. That's what Absalom did. And his father uh, had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? And he was also a very goodly man. And his mother bare him after Absalom. And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar the priest. And they following Adonijah helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Ray. And the mighty men which belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah slew sheep and oxen and fat cattle by the stone of uh, Zoholeth, which is by Enrogel, and called all his brethren, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But Nathan the prophet and Benaiah and the mighty men and Solomon his brother he called not. So, just kind of uncovering his plot just a little bit. I know I must hasten along, but in uncovering his plot, what he did was he tried to make himself look important. This idea of him appointing the the chariots and the men to run before him, he wanted to be seen as a leader. He wanted to be seen as a king's son. And so the people were seeing him with this entourage. This wasn't a one-day event. This was the way that he went about. This is the way that he presented himself before the people. And so the people are saying, look at the king's oldest son. Look at how he's going about with the chariots. Look at how he's got the men running before him. Look at how royal he appears. Okay? And throughout all of this, he is schmoozing with the people. Okay? He's winning over some of the other uh, important people of David's uh, David's cabinet, if you will. The people who are 
reigning along with David. He gets one of the priests that was faithful to, to David and that did not forsake him whenever Absalom led people astray. He even gets Joab, the leader of the king's army, to follow along with him. And with that, he's going to have a lot of the king's army there as well. So he's got a military leader. He's got a priest. He's getting the hearts of the people to come and follow after him. And so he makes this huge feast. And he brings everyone in. And there's the the whole atmosphere of celebration. He's got a priest. He's got a, a military leader. He's presented himself before the people. He's got the pedigree. He's the oldest son of David. And he makes this feast. He invites a select group of people here. But he is specific to exclude certain people. So what he is doing in this is he is scheming. He's scheming. He's saying, how can I manipulate the circumstances to bring about the outcome that I want? Okay, and the reason I put it that way is we must be careful or we do like Adonijah and Absalom. We try to scheme. We try to present ourselves in a certain way. We try to impress certain people. We try to do things in a way that's going to get the outcome that we desire. So how can I scheme? How can I work the circumstances to bring out the outcome that I desire? And I'll tell you, you get yourself in trouble doing that. Because if you look at David and you look at Solomon and you look at so many other people throughout Scripture, God was the one that was ordering their steps. They weren't scheming. They weren't plotting. We saw that a lot with David, that David is sitting back saying, if God wants me to be king, God's going to make me king. And Adonijah is saying, God will never make me king, so I've got to figure out a way to make me king. And hang anyone who says otherwise, right? And so anyway, he makes all this, he gets this feast and everything ready, brings all the people in, he declares himself to be king over there while David is still alive without God's, uh, without God's anointing on him, without David's um, sanctioning of this, he does his own thing. And he thinks that David is too weak, too old, uh, too far gone to do anything about it. And he thinks, look at how smart I am. Look at how I've pulled one over. I'm going to make this happen. But there's a problem. Because Adonijah was never meant to be king. And Adonijah knew this. If we skip forward just a little bit, we look at uh, chapter 1, verse number 18. It says, And now behold, Adonijah reigneth, or be, and, and now behold, Adonijah reigneth, and now, my Lord, the king, I, know it's not, I, I got the wrong verse there. It's chapter 2. Verse 15, sorry. Chapter 2, verse 15. And he said, Thou knowest that the kingdom was mine. This is Adonijah talking to Bathsheba. And he said, Thou knowest that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces on me, that I should reign, reign. howbeit the kingdom is turned about and has become my brother's for it was his from the Lord. Mm-hmm. Okay? So Adonijah knew that the Lord had chosen Solomon. He also knew that David had chosen Solomon. Okay? Yet, he was trying his very best to make it work out on his behalf. He was trying his very best to turn things his way. And so... Um, If we look at 1 Chronicles chapter 22, I haven't consulted Chronicles very much in our study so far, but 1 Chronicles chapter 22, this is even a little bit more damning toward Adonijah. This is not whenever David got him no heat was with Abishag and all these different things, but this was when David was still reigning. This is when David was still healthy. So we're going back in time. Everybody good with that? Okay. So 1 Chronicles chapter 22, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God. This is his altar of the burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. And he sent masons to hew 
to hew rock stones and to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails, um, for the doors of the gates, for the joining of the brass in abundance without rain. And so all these things, David is healthy. He is reigning. He is bringing about things. He is bringing iron in abundance. He's having people to hew stones. He is preparing for the building of the temple. And we come down to verse five. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of the Lord, my God. But the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born unto thee, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all the enemies round about. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. And he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Okay, I read a lot of or a lot of scripture there, but David was very healthy. He was very much king. He was very much in charge. He was accumulating all of the uh, materials to build the temple. He couldn't build it. Solomon's going to build it. He takes Solomon and he says. All of this is going to be yours. This is your responsibility. I want to do it. God wouldn't let me. But he told me specifically that I'm going to have a son. His name is going to be Solomon. Solomon's going to build the temple, and I'm going to establish his kingdom, his reign forever. Okay? We can look at, I'm not going to for sake of time, but we can also look at 1 Chronicles 28. And these two passages tell us it's not just a, a private conversation between David and Solomon. But all of the princes of the land are in on it. All of the priests are in on it. David announces it to all of the people. Solomon is going to reign, and he is going to be a man of peace, and he is going to build the temple of the Lord. Okay? So Adonijah comes in. He schemes, he plots, he plans, and goes completely against the will of God to make himself king. He says, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want to do. And he fails. Surprise. Okay, so man tries to overthrow God, and God's will will still be done. We look at the kingdoms and the thrones and the the empires of today, and we think, how in the world is any of this going to bring about good? Or how how is any of this going to bring about God's will and God's glory? God can work all things together. There's not a single person who is on a throne anywhere. There's not a single president that's in an office, not a single dictator that is reigning over people, that God is not working together in his plan. There's not a one of them that could be there unless God allows it. Yeah. Okay? And so anyway, back to this whole plot, as he is having his feast, as he's announcing himself to be king, they come to David, and Nathan the prophet, which has been a great friend of David, he is the one that has both encouraged and confronted David. That's what a good friend is. Yeah. And so whenever David was doing well, he cheered him on. Whenever he was sinning, he says, you, you are the man, right? Yeah. And he comes and confronts him in his sin. And then after the sin, he is also there walking through it with David, helping him as David is getting right. Mm -hmm. And now he's coming to David and he's saying, David, did you make Adonijah king and not tell me? You aware of all these things that's going on? Bathsheba comes as well. Both of them orchestrate this whole thing to come to David, tell him what's going on. And so David quickly gets together and makes Solomon his co-regent. They're going to reign together. Solomon's going to be king and David's going to be king same time. So that there's nothing that Adonijah can do about it. And so they, they bring it all together. The priest anoints Solomon. There's no record of Adonijah ever being anointed. The priest anoints Solomon. The horn is blown, or the trumpet's blown, and Solomon rides on King David's mule, sets on King David's throne. Mm -hmm. And even David himself bows to Solomon. 
And word goes out that Solomon has been crowned king by David. And the whole thing with Abinadjah is going on not too far from there. And a messenger comes, tells them what happened, and they say, oh no, yeah. we're in trouble now. And so Adonijah uh, runs and begs for mercy. And Solomon tells him, if you'll behave yourself, if you'll be a good boy, I'll let you live. But you better walk the line. Yeah. Okay? And so anyway, he allows him to live. He doesn't kill anyone at that time. And David is reigning. Solomon is reigning. And finally, in the beginning of chapter number two, now the days of David drew nigh that he should die. And he charged Solomon and his son. And he goes through and he tells him all these things. We'll go into this next week. We don't have time this week. But anyway, David dies. And Adonijah tries to get the throne again and finally gets executed. Okay? But what ends up happening here, and I, I've, got to, I've got to stop. But anyway, what ends up happening here is that David anoints Solomon king in spite of everything that Adonijah done and God's will is done through it all. Because here's the thing. If Adonijah, if Adonijah had become king, he wasn't a man of peace. He wasn't a man of God. He wasn't a man that was going to try to get the temple built. And he wasn't going to be a man through whom the Messiah would come. Okay? And so God got rid of that whole idea. And he brought Solomon in. And now, if we look at this from a worldly perspective, from a carnal, a fleshly perspective, Adonijah should have been the king. That's the way the world's rules work, right? He's the oldest son. But if you look, God is the one that sets the kings. God is the one that chooses his man. And so now it's one of the younger sons that becomes king, but it is a king that is going to do God's will. It's going to bring about the temple. It's going to do the things that God has set in place. And so God makes his man become the king. And you see that happening many different times throughout Scripture is that God circumvents man's ideas, man's plans, man's way of doing things, man's culture, man's traditions, and God brings about his will in spite of it all. And so this is what ends up happening. And uh, anyway, I'm going to have to stop right there. I don't know that that's necessarily a good cutoff place. But Adonijah's plans were foiled. And David did the will of God at the end of his life. If we would continue in chapter 2, which we will next week, we're going to see that David is going to charge Solomon to love and to serve God. And so what we find in this is that David, I said he was an example of uh, what should be the normal Christian life. He finishes well. He's at his deathbed. He's at his final words. His, he's crossing the finish line, if you will. And he is still loving God, still serving God, still encouraging other people to follow and obey and to trust God, even at the very end. God, he shared mistakes and things in the past but he's pointing his son the right direction. He's saying, if you'll just continue serving God, you'll do great. And so what he's going to do is he's got the, the kingdom up here. You know, spiritually, um, as far as unity goes, he's got a unified kingdom that is serving God, that has defeated all their enemies around them, uh, that is wealthy, has everything that it needs. It is prosperous, it's powerful, it is all of these things. Okay, And he's handing it off to Solomon. He's saying, I've served God. I've done the very best I could with the kingdom, with leading the people. God has prospered me. God has directed me. God has done great things. And now I'm giving it to you. What are you going to do with it? And so that's where we're going to leave it at today. And next week, we're going to start seeing what Solomon does with it. He's been given a great gift. He's been given something tremendous. And what's he going to do with it? So any questions or comments before we wrap up tonight? I was wondering um, how, how, I don't know if you can be able to look on this, how old was Solomon when David has anointed him to be a king? Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and when his brother was propagating to, to, to enter the kingdom, because I've got some few questions, but I don't know, I don't know how to ask them without knowing the, 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 the level of their age at time. Solomon would have been between 20 and 30. Mm -hmm. Some some Bible scholars put him closer to 20. Mm -hmm. uh, so, say 25. Adonijah would have been older. And so that would have put him up. Uh, David reigned for 40 years. 40 years, yeah. Okay. Uh, and with him being one of the older brothers, he would have been up probably at least 35. Yeah. So him being 35, Solomon being 20, 22, 25. 15 Ten years apart from each other, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Solomon would have been still very much relatively young. But, yeah, you put him somewhere around 25. Anyway, I will rest the case for now. I'm just going to read what you see. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. Lord, we thank you so much for the, the time in your word, for the examples, for the, all the things that we've looked at. And Lord, we just ask you, Lord, to help us to uh, take these things and to learn from them, Lord, and help us, Lord, not to just uh, take in the knowledge, take in the wisdom, but help us, Lord, to actually put it in practice in our lives, Lord. Lord, we don't want to be uh, foolish wise men. And Lord, we just ask you, Lord, that you would uh, just help us to live for you, help us to, to seek after you, help us to trust you. And Lord, we thank you so much for all you do. And Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.